0: Well, this episode of Discover Bright Life is a little bit different to the usual episodes that you'll have heard so far in the series, as instead of talking to some of the people using Bright Life services, we're actually looking at the making of the series. And I'm delighted to say that this episode we're joined with Head of Bright Life, Chris McClelland, uh, who's going to give us a more of an oversight into some of the things we've talked about during the series and perhaps what the legacy of Bright Life will be uh, once the project comes to a close in two years' time. Chris um, you've listened to uh, many of the podcast episodes what what was your initial thought because it must be quite interesting and the project that you've been so involved in for three years to hear it from an outsider's perspective.
1: Um, They were absolutely fascinating Um, I was really struck by the personal stories that people had to tell and the way they feel Bright Life has had some kind of impact on their lives. Um, Often when you're trying to organize or manage something, you're often involved in the systems and making sure things actually happen. Um, But actually to listen to what people were saying was was quite an emotional experience Mm. (laughs) at times really, because you suddenly felt actually all that work was, was doing something real.
0: When you go back to when the project was first proposed to you what were the initial aims that were given to you? Uh,
1: The initial aims were that we were going to reduce social isolation in our part of the world Um, and social isolation is quite an abstract concept really and trying to find an understanding of that and how we would go about it locally seemed to be the challenge. And there were a few sort of key elements that had been described and that the team, when I arrived, were already trying to put in place. But it was very early days and it felt like sort of pioneering work and a, a bit of uncertainty as to what we would do and exactly how. Um, we knew we had some test areas that we are going to try things. We knew we had some providers ready to get going, but just a few, literally two or three, and we had a team of people wanting to make it happen. Um, but it all felt quite uncertain. Uh, and it, it's not like taking over an, an existing service that's been running for years, and you're going to try and change it a bit, make it happen, where there's a template and everybody knows what's expected. Um, the great thing about it is there wasn't a template you could create your own template that was the exciting but also the scary bit.
0: We've heard in in some of the scripts that I've mentioned about the linking to Big Lottery Fund can you just give us an idea of how what you're doing here in Cheshire links up to the big picture?
1: Of course Um, there's a national lottery project called Aging Better and they have funded 14 different projects across the country all with the aim of trying to reduce social isolation but all with the freedom to test out what they think will work in their area. Um, We're a bit different, we're a rural or semi-rural location a lot of my contemporaries are leading projects in places like Leeds, Bristol, Hackney, Camden, Sheffield, Birmingham and so on and so forth We're a bit different and the lottery are interested in gathering the evidence about what works and maybe what doesn't work from all of those different locations. So we're feeding into a body of evidence nationally that hopefully will influence national policy in some way.
0: Are you given an idea of... um you know what the definition of social isolation or loneliness is Um, because quite a lot of times when I was speaking to some of the people using your services throughout the series I kind of try and get them to identify what that is because it's quite a movable term they are movable terms aren't they that it's different to different people so how do you know in when you're at an organization like this in the tick box that person is lonely, that person isn't lonely, and who you reach out and help and who you you don't?
1: Well, if we take feeling lonely first of all. I think we tick the box if somebody says they feel lonely because it's an emotional response and it can be in the moment as opposed to an all-pervading, all-the-time feeling. So if somebody says they are lonely or feel lonely, then we take that at face value. The social isolation is a bit more of an academic Uh, approach where the um, the researchers will say we can measure that by looking at the number of contacts a person has the types of contacts you know whether that's face-to-face by telephone by email or whatever and with whom they have those contacts is it somebody who may be um, an authority figure like a, a GP or is it somebody personal, like a friend or a family member? And by analyzing those contacts, you can determine a level of social isolation. And um, nationally, the projects are using certain indicators of loneliness and isolation, which we apply through our evaluation process, which all our projects cooperate with. So we can separate out those two things as to a feeling, an emotion, and something that's a bit more technical about looking and measuring the type and frequency and the changes that happens during the life of somebody's engagement with Bright Life.
0: Well, one of the people that we heard from in episode one of the series was Tim, and I met him on the Saturday Share Club. Uh, Let's just listen to a clip of Tim telling us about his story.
2: It's been going on for about four years. I lost my right hip. I had a serious infection so they had to take my hip away. Towards the end of last year um, my wife turned around and said, I can't take this anymore and she just walked out on me. And we'd been together for 33 years and that hit me hard and I did, I'll I'll be honest, I went into a dark hole. I don't see anybody, I don't have any contact with anybody. It's a very lonely place to be places like this this makes so much difference to me and that's only for a few hours but the people around as you can see they're all so friendly i feel so much better in myself
0: well chris that was tim and i and so many other people listening to that were quite horrified i suppose he explained how he'd only um, left the house three times in nine months and how quickly his life had changed as a result of, you know, disability, um, a breakdown in his relationship. Uh, with the work that you've done over the past three years, are there many Tims out there that uh, you'll find in Life for working with?
1: Well, first of all, listening to Tim... Um it does to me clearly demonstrate how quickly and easily these life circumstances can impact upon your loneliness, your isolation. And I think a lot of people listening to Tim will see the reality of that and can probably relate to that in their own communities, neighbourhoods, families, friends. Um, are there a lot of Tims out there? It's hard to count the Tims, but there's more than there the needs to be or should be. And I think that's what we're about. Um, I think early on in our project, we found it difficult to try and reach those kinds of individuals. How do you find somebody who's socially isolated has been one of our biggest challenges. And through the range of projects, like social prescribing, like our commission providers, we can use different tactics and different techniques. Um, I think the encouraging thing is that Tim has found a way to bright life. And through that, has been able to effect a positive change in his life. Not to say that his life won't be without lots of challenges going th- forward. But the fact that we've reached the Tims and through some of the other stories, case studies, um, the individual reports we've had from the people we work with, clearly we're managing to get to those people. Um, but I think it does reflect the scale of the challenge. It does reflect the significance of the issue that we're trying to address and it does show the reality of it. So I think Tim's story and we're so grateful for Tim sharing that with us uh, enables us to understand a lot better about people's lives and maybe some of the things we can do to enhance...
0: There was obviously um, quite a lot of laughter as well when it came to some of the women's story. Mm -hmm. Um, In that particular episode, we heard from some uh, ladies who had gone to school together and then reunited later on and were going to share club. And in the final episode, uh, we also heard um, from some ladies who had gone on to meet partners after becoming uh, widowed and they were getting out and connecting at a church drop-in centre. One thing that um, people do often ask is, is there a difference in how you reach men who are isolated to women? Are there gender differences when it comes to reaching out to those people who are lonely?
1: Um, I should be wary of stereotyping, um, but we certainly found it more difficult to engage men in a number of the activities that we've helped to broker. Um, and would use that knowledge to try and think of activities or, or encourage other organizations to think of activities that might be more engaging. Um, uh, again, there's a danger of stereotypes here, but I think men may be more reluctant or reserved at joining in, perhaps less prone to social dialogue, um, maybe a lot of the life structured around a workplace and when that falls apart, have less social contacts um, we've had people come forward with proposals around um, activities that might appeal to, to men, uh, some of the more practical activities, um, or targeting particular issues around uh, men like mental health, where they may be less catered for, but uh, for which we can find a positive response. Again, with men and with many of our groups of people we're working with, it's trying to take that negative about engagement and turn it into a positive. And, and the point you pick on on laughter is once we get people across the threshold of any kind of activity, and some need more encouragement or facilitation, and that might apply to, to a lot of the men that we work with, once they're across there and they form one single connection, that, that can be a key to, to, to an ongoing friendship, relationship, or, or contact that enables them to have some joy in life and we're constantly looking to see the joy in aging and the positives about that, mm-hmm. that everybody's got something to bring. Um, and so it's, it's great hearing that laughter. We know that doesn't fix everything in people's life, um, but the fact that people are able then to form connections outside of a particular activity um, actually is a sustainable way of improvement for an individual. Um, So we we find that really encouraging um, and we're always keen to to accentuate the fun, the laughter and that comes out of friendship and camaraderie. Get a few people together, a bit of banter, a bit of relationship, a bit of fun and it it often doesn't matter what the activity is, getting somebody into a group of other people, then people themselves have the solution to relationships. Mm -hmm. We don't need to do that for them.
0: It's interesting that that's a a phrase that you bring in because um, in the episode where we heard about diagnosing loneliness um, with two local doctors they Mm -hmm. talked about the idea of not finding a pill that fits all to cure loneliness and that the patients or the people as Jonathan uh, one of the GPs referred to have to find that solution themselves Um, but they also as health experts talked about the importance of Something that Bright Life was doing in connecting, joining the dots, the idea that, say, Tim had been referred via a district nurse to a social prescriber on the Bright Life team um, so that he can then reconnect to his community and feel a part of life again. Um, let's just have a listen to the two doctors, Jonathan and Achler and them explaining from a GP point of view how important that's been to them in finding somewhere else that they can channel some of their patients to find the right solution for them.
3: The trick, I think, is, is to be more proactive than perhaps I have been in the past uh, to ask these questions and identify people who are lonely and, and often... I think we ask it when there's times of crisis. So suddenly, mm, you, oh, you're really unwell. Um, do I need to send you to hospital or can I yeah. keep you at home? Well, who else is at home? And only then do you find out that there's nobody. Yeah. Uh, and once you're at that point, it's it's all a bit late. But yes. how can we do things uh, earlier on to identify who needs additional support and who needs additional help? And and even when I'm saying that, it's not about necessarily about help. It's yeah. just identifying for people, did you know that this this exists? Mm. Did you know that this exists? And I don't want to medicalize people or somehow think that I've got all the answers, because often people have got the answers in themselves, themselves yeah. uh, and, and need to do this. And when I went to the uh, the Bright Life um, coffee morning, uh, we were certainly seeing individuals who um, had been bereaved and were now on their own and finding that, that a great source of social interaction, just let's, let's meet some new people and we can go and we can, we can chat. Um, and, and they were, they were laughing, they were joking, they were talking about how great it was to meet up at whatever dance it was or whatever at lunch that they, they would go to uh, and the transport being a key thing, a part of that, a part of that. So, so it was really yeah. good.
0: Well, Chris, when it comes to connecting agencies, this is obviously a really important part of Bright Life's legacy, as when the project comes to a close in two years' time, at the end of the five years, you'll want the community and the agencies to almost find their own way and their own feet of making sure that this work continues. Has that been quite difficult to kind of join people from local authorities to groups, voluntary groups, to... You know the NHS or CCG and and health trusts all together. It sounds like a huge task. Um, I wouldn't know where to start, and I guess you didn't three years ago. But now we can hear, as from Jonathan and actually that th- those waves, those ripples, are being felt.
1: I think at the start, and quite naturally, one started at quite a high level, trying to get the the heads of the local authority, the heads of the health services, uh, the chief people to support and encourage what you're trying to do. At the end of the day though, we found, particularly with social prescribing, the value of somebody who's working in the community, who gets to know the GPs, or the district nurses, or the mental health workers, the housing officers, uh, the the social workers, but the voluntary groups, the activities, and who build up this this huge internal mental map of people and places and work and creating a connectivity there, building a profile for themselves, building relationships. And that's how, in in the example that's quoted there from uh, the doctors and in Winsford, uh, somebody being present in the community, being part of it, and not necessarily being part of a state or statutory type organization with a sort of more independent feel um, has worked the best for us. And in cultivating those relationships, they've built bridges between organizations. Um, and in terms of a legacy, we hope they will be sustained. Um, in, in Winsford again, for example, the concept of a wellbeing week, which has been generated through the local community and which Bright Life's been an active participant and contributed to, and helped to strengthen that. And we think that's the kind of thing that will continue. I think the best solutions are probably going to be place-based, neighborhood-based, local networks. Uh, And the the evolving all of the time, something that was there last week isn't there this, and then something new comes along. How do people know about that? if you listen to our GPs, they say, we need to know all our medical stuff, we need to be able to diagnose correctly, we need to be able to listen, we need to bit to have time to see people, to refer on to the right kind of sources of help. But when somebody comes who's lonely or isolated, a pill may not always be the answer, mm-hmm. um, even if there was a single pill, one pill wouldn't work for everybody Mm. Um, but how can they know what's going on in the neighborhood and they found the real value of having somebody there who acts as a facilitator Mm. a connector to those things to be hugely valuable Um, by the end of the project and we're still learning we hope we'll have a body of evidence that demonstrates that and more importantly if if we can take some of the pressures off those gps um, It's going to enable them to offer a better service to those people who who they need to, um, as opposed to where people have got nowhere to turn but the GPs Mm. through something like loneliness, which can't easily be fixed medically. Mm. So um, we think there's a tremendous value to it. We think there's a national movement growing around this, and some people call it social prescribing of a community-connecting community connecting doesn't really matter it's that concept of somebody knowing their area knowing the partners and willing to build a relationship with an individual and taking a bit of time to do that mm-hmm. um, on a basis that isn't it isn't a patient practitioner relationship it's it's putting that older person in the decision making seat about what what they want out of their lives but giving them some help to know how to do that how mm-hmm. to achieve what they want
0: Has it made you rethink what life might be like when you retire? I know it has me.
1: Um, I've become much more aware of those issues and uh, there's a sense of um, concern about that because you you, you see the real issues that people are living with. And um, I think one of the things we've discovered is that bright life can't do a great deal about people's physical health we can do bits and pieces which help people to be more mobile and more active uh, but generally we can't do that um, and as all our bodies get older and potentially frailer um, that becomes more challenging. What we can do is make a difference to how people feel about their lives, feel more confident and positive. I guess one of the things about that I do see myself about getting older is some of those tremendous examples of people having fun just by getting together or pursuing different activities also we've got some amazing volunteers who way past retirement age in the formal sense are giving so much back and getting so much from it themselves and it's a reminder that keeping mentally active in the best way you can do however you do it and there isn't a right or wrong um is it, it's it's, is really important so i'm taking that message out of it you know that i've I, you don't stop at a certain age <laughs> you have to see it as a start and uh, and and there's plenty more to to go for and uh if we all live a long life we want that to be interesting active engaging
0: well, it's interesting that you use those phrases to describe um, the lessons or the way that you'd like to approach, um, you know, life later on and keeping things interesting, as that reminds me of two people who we featured. Uh, in one of our episodes called Connecting 360 that was Yvonne and Simone from Community Compass and they had this particular message to give to Bright Life where they wanted to thank you for the opportunity um, and for the funding that you provided to get them started.
4: Bright Life um, to us has been amazing. We wouldn't have been able to to do what we've done really without, without being successful with the tenders. It has highlighted loneliness um, in older people and it's, it's brought a greater, greater awareness. I think the test and learn approach as well for yeah. the likes of us and I know some other people that have had funding, the fact that they were willing to take a bit of a risk. Yeah. Um, whereas although we, we were really enthusiastic and sort mm-hmm. of adamant about what we wanted to do, a lot of funders probably wouldn't have done because although we had experience of working for organisations, we hadn't really done that ourselves. No. Um, but they were willing to take that bit of a risk. Yeah. Um, and since then, we have got funding from other, from other funders because we've now got a track record. So yeah. for that, it's really helped us mm. on our journey. Uh, yeah. And I think they'll leave a legacy yeah. that oh, only, gosh, yeah. can only benefit um, you know, older people across Cheshire West, really. Yeah. Um, the learning from it, you know, what's worked, what hasn't worked will be useful um as Yvonne said the contacts the people it's putting together that all have a similar sort of aim and agenda of tackling isolation and loneliness is invaluable really for, for us um yeah and I think they will have a lasting legacy that as I said can only be beneficial for for the likes of us and for for the older people
0: Well Chris, we can hear so clearly the passion that Yvonne and Simone have for what they're doing and it really is infectious. I enjoyed spending time with them and I could also see the difference it was making to the people walking through their doors. But just give us a bit of context, um, how you go about funding, if people come to you with ideas that are commissioned, how does that work and how many um, projects have you funded over the last few years?
1: Um, well, at the moment, we're up to about 45 different projects, which are either running now or will be running before too long. And we've, we've awarded around about £2 million worth of funding. So that's the, there's the numbers. Um, I hope Yvonne and Simone don't mind this, but if I call them Bright Life guinea pigs, <laughs> um, they were there at the start of one of our first providers, uh, branching off on their own, Trying to do something different and new, um, and we were experimenting, um, and some things went well, and some things didn't go so well. But they had such enthusiasm that when we came to develop our commissioning, we used a lot of the learning from them to improve it for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we've learnt is that I think we took a, a, a traditional approach at the very start, which is we've got some money here's your bid, you have to go through the hoops, and if we think you're good enough, we'll give it to you. Mm. Fair enough, standard approach. But we realised that wasn't getting the best out of the people who had ideas, and so we varied the approach. Uh, One, to try and support them with their applications, uh, to build in different ways of helping them to put in the best application possible, and to tell their story and their idea. Um, The second thing we did was to come up with a concept called Bright Ideas, where well, we didn't say we want you to do this in this way. We said, you know your local community or the, a community of interest. Come forward if you've got a good idea. Talk to us about it. If we think it's got some mileage, we'll help you to develop it and we'll give you some funding to experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and Yvonne and Simone have evolved as an organization, but many others us have come forward from different parts of the community, have come forward with ideas we would never have thought of brilliant ideas and that we're keen to to test out Um, and the great thing about our funding is we can afford to take a risk it's not funding that's reliant on the local authority who might have particular targets that they have to achieve we can take a risk that some things will work and some won't And as long as people give it the best and try the best and help share that learning then it's worth a punt as uh, you know as has been expressed and uh, we think from that will come ideas that will work really well for the future and, and many that will be sustainable beyond the life of our funding. Um, and I think with Yvonne and Simone, when I see them in operation, uh, it never looks like they're working to me. It looks like they're out having a good time and everybody around them is having a good time. Uh, so I think that's a great reward great reward. A bright life.
0: That's good that the boss says that too. So, <laughs> when it comes to measuring legacy, because with any project that has had um, significant investment and these loose terms that you've kind of been given, how will you, as a manager, define what the legacy is and whether you've been successful?
1: We are trying to work out at the moment what our legacy will be and try and understand and define that because at the moment we're in the middle of ensuring all these wonderful projects happen and work and start to gather the evidence Uh, as we gather more evidence then we'll have more messages to leave for people. But we hope a number of things We hope we will have left a lot of stronger organisations who are capable of thinking through and putting together activities and running them for themselves and benefiting their community um, as, as as an outcome. I think that would be really important. I think we will have left a message for people that by involving older people in decision making, one of the key points about our commissioning is we don't say who gets the money. Our Older People's Alliance have made those decisions, that you can trust older people to see a good idea, to assess it, to encourage it, and to make it happen. So give older people a voice about what's happening to their lives. We take that concept from the very personal, if I'm a social prescriber talking to an individual, what do they want out of life? How can they make it happen? To write to the top, how do we decide how Bright Life allocates its money? And I think we've tried to tr- we've tried to ensure older people drive the project rather than them feeling it's being driven by other people. And we hope other people will learn from that. Other organisations will learn from that. Trust and involve older people. We hope we will have left a legacy of really positive marketing and communication that ageing isn't all about the depressing facts and factors that actually older people are out there being part of society contributing getting something out of it putting something into it helping each other helping themselves and it doesn't always have to be projected as a negative or a misery and like you say we're all living longer lives we're all going to be around for a while and we're going to make the best of it and we've tried to get that message across and that the bright life brand if you like represents that it's a positive thing it's something you can do rather than something you can't do so that's a really important element of our legacy I think there's more simple things like our volunteering that if you if you develop particular roles that people will be interested in rather than just say come volunteer that actually there's things that people really get turned on by and particularly want to go for, our co-researchers our community connectors our older people, alliance members they all do different things but do them expertly and get a lot out of them and perhaps wouldn't have come for just any old volunteering job Mm. so I'm starting to build a list of legacy items here Um, I think We've learnt how to commission differently to some of the um, some of the statutory organisations by taking a more supportive, facilitative approach, as well as the older people making the decisions. Not trying to catch people out, but trying to help people to catch them in, to get them part of things, and to be open to ideas. Not to think you've got all the answers. To think the answers are out there. The creativity and the imagination is is, is enormous once you give people permission
0: how big um when it comes to defining success is it all about the pennies and the pounds um let me just play you an example um from christine who leads the team of social prescribers and she's talking about that idea of gathering evidence of perhaps seeing the effectiveness when it comes to spend on a project like this I think that through this project and the the five year funding we got, they're looking to provide evidence, and I think social prescribing certainly is, you know, starting to provide that evidence that it's making a difference. Mm-hmm. And I know that um, a social prescribing service, um, quite local to here in Halton, um, and there's evidenced um, savings of eight pound ninety for every one pound invested in that project and if we can produce any type of evidence of savings for Mm. the government for communities for your local health providers then that would be marvelous because i would love for this you know this type of project to carry on well chris that's in an area which is just slightly out of reach from where you work here in cheshire but not too far away how um how big a deal is it when it comes to looking at the uh, the monetary side and seeing whether the funding and the investment that you've made has made a difference. Have you got any evidence that can back up that kind of saving per spend?
1: We're still in the, uh, the, the, the phase of developing and gathering the evidence. Um, we've got a great relationship with the University of Chester, who have a specialist centre for ageing studies and are very actively engaged in our evaluation, rigorous academic and they're embarking on a, an analysis of social return of investment cost-benefit analysis which will include different aspects of the Bright Life project. And I think it is important if we can get that evidence to use it and to put it out there. Um, we know that the state is struggling financially to fund all the health services that we need with increasing demand, local authorities are under pressure around social care. And if we want them to invest in some of these activities, we can't just say we think it's a good thing. We've got to prove it's a good thing. So the various evaluation exercises going on with the project are really important. Um, At the same time, with some of these things like social prescribing, there's been a lack of evidence or robust evidence over the last few years. Uh, But I think there's a real appetite to, to look at these things seriously. As... A more economic way of having an impact upon demands upon care, health services and some intermediate type approach that, that helps and makes a difference. Um, but so robust evidence is really important. We're taking that seriously and seeking to acquire it. It's a little bit early to say where we're up to on that. But already we're seeing data that is showing that people feel better about their health generally through interaction with Bright Life. Uh, we're seeing that um, some people are, are, are experiencing a reduction in social isolation and loneliness and have greater commitment to being part of their community. So the signs are positive um, and that evidence is being put together by us but we're trying to share that evidence with others outside as well through the NHS, through the Ageing Better projects with the Big Lottery. Um, so it's a really important question. and. The key policymakers won't just hear the personal stories and testimony, which is hugely valuable. They'll want to see data that supports a case. So we try and put those two together.
0: Mm. What kind of um, response have you had from some of the key political figures in the government, uh, be it locally, nationally? Have they noticed the work that you've been doing?
1: I think locally, certainly, people are noticing the work Uh, we're doing Um, i met with people from the local authority yesterday who the bright life message is getting across they're getting good feedback from the communities on what bright life is doing they're really interested in the ways we've gone about things our philosophies Um, we've been invited to be part of the age-friendly approach in cheshire which wasn't there when we started and they see bright life as a key Partner in thinking through how they go about that, so that's really important. Our our partners in the health service. Well, you've heard from those GPs. GPs um, are professional people who need to be persuaded of something being good, not just told it's good. The fact that they're speaking on our behalf is a clear message there. The people who do some of the key decision making in the health service. They're the people helping to influence what kind of evaluation we do, what kind of evidence will be valuable to them. So I think there's interest there. We acknowledge that the pressures on them are enormous, but the fact that they engage with us, whether it's public health, other local authority services, clinical commissioning groups, they're interested in active partners with Bright Life. They're wanting to learn, they're wanting to see, they're wanting to understand, and they're wanting to take what they can from it. So I think that, and that's changed over the last two years. Nationally, all the projects are trying to put their evidence together so the lottery and other key partners can be influenced. And we hope the work in Cheshire here will contribute to that too.
0: What, With the knowledge that you have right now, if I could give you a magic wand, what perhaps two or three issues do you think are the most important Um, when it comes to reducing loneliness or social isolation that really need to be worked on be it money, be it love and attention looking at things right now because it clearly is a a growing problem which is going to continue to need focus over the next decade really
1: Um, Love and attention goes a long way in life doesn't it Um, uh, I think what we want is respect for older people that they are engaged they're properly consulted, they're involved, they make decisions about their own lives, that they're involved in policy making and decision making. Um, when I talk to our Older People's Alliance, that's the big message. However it happens, they want their voice to be heard and to, to influence, so that's the most important thing. Uh, two, I think, yeah, money does come into its, you know, we can't provide activities sometimes without funding. I think particularly social prescribing is something that does need some investment but actually could save a lot of money Um, in the health service, in local government, in national government funding regimes. We're showing, you listen to those stories, we can make a difference to people's lives by fairly economic approaches through that networking place-based approach. Um, I think the third thing is not to be afraid of testing things out and experimenting. We tend to go for what we trust and know. I think what we're shown in Bright Life is by taking a risk sometimes, giving people freedom to try things out, trusting communities and organisations, giving them the opportunity to fail sometimes, not to automatically assume success, because you'll only ever do things that you've known to succeed before if you go that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So affording people risk.
0: Well, and I've got
1: to stop at three, haven't I, so we'll leave it there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just finally, what, what are you most proud of as your part of being part of this project? What's made you proud, will you look back on in many years to come that you, know, that you contributed or made a difference to in this project?
1: I'd first of all say I'm proud that we were part of something that became a national movement in the time of the project. People were talking about Bright Life in a very separate term when I arrived. During that time, and not just through Bright Life and Ageing Better projects, through the Joe Cox campaign to end loneliness, the work of Age UK nationally, the British Red Cross Society, that growing awareness and determination to do something about it and to be positive about it, to have been part of that growing movement almost from the start, I think is something that uh, we feel really proud of. The second thing I would say I'm, I'll reflect back on probably being the best team I've ever worked with and I think about team in the broadest sense, we've got a brilliant staff team, so dedicated, so expert, but our team of volunteers, our team of partners who have really got around us, rallied round us and wanted to make it work and uh, it, it's a privilege to really work in those circumstances because that doesn't happen too often in one's working life. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Chris, it's been an honour talking to you and it's been a real insight into seeing how Bright Life works as well as we've put this podcast series together. Uh, Thank you for your time today and also for the series as well.
1: No, we're delighted. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to Discover Bright Life, a podcast challenging the idea of loneliness and exploring new ways of tackling social isolation for those over 50. The podcast is presented and produced by Claire Freeman and a Small Furry Bear Productions. For more information, visit brightlifecheshire.org.uk. Discover Bright Life. Because sometimes the best medicine is a good laugh in friendly company.